Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Devin Horseman, CTO and co-founder of Arcturus, a volumetric content platform that's raised over $22 million in funding. Devin, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. So tell us, what does the name mean? I, I briefly looked it up online. I'm not sure if I'm saying it correctly, but tell us, what does that name mean? Yeah, so Arcturus is the brightest apparent star in the northern hemisphere. It's kind of a reference to sort of the forward-looking and rising star aspect of what we're up to. We're kind of looking at what lies beyond in terms of media and trying to, you know, inspire people, you know, in the same way that you might look to the stars. Nice. I love that. Now, a couple of questions that we like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder and entrepreneur. First one, is there a specific founder that you really admire? And if so, who is it and what do you admire about them? Yeah, it's interesting. There's a couple that come to mind as a technical founder and in the graphics and 3D world. John Carmack is somebody that I've always really appreciated. In particular, I really like the trust that he inspires by his dedication to an honest and public assessment of, of the things that he works on and a discourse that deals with reality. I love that he's got this willingness to reflect on what is going well and what is not, and a dedication that really focuses on the, the needle-moving elements of whatever he's been working on. You might know him from running the gaming company id Software. You know, they were responsible for things like Quake and uh, numerous other, you know, 3D gaming titles. He later went on to work as the CTO at uh, Oculus, which was acquired by Meta. Nice. That's an interesting call out. I've not heard of him before, but I'll, uh, I'll be looking into him now. Yeah. And the other one that really sticks out to me is Tim Sweeney at uh, Epic Games. So he's done an amazing job leading his company through, you know, what is a very long path to becoming one of the most important companies to the future of media. And I think he's done that by making some really hard choices, benefiting the long run instead of short term gain. He's kept the company private, and that must have taken some soul searching. He's also kept laser focused on making incredible quality software and, and doing things the right way, even if it's it's a long way. So now that his company, Epic, have invested in us, I'm very proud to be working in, in partnership. Yeah, you know, one of my most popular articles that I've written was called uh, Why Your Company Needs an Enemy. And it was telling the story about what Epic Games did with Apple. So mm -hmm. this was you know, years ago when that all started. But mm -hmm. it was just a master class in how to, you know, declare war on an enemy and then rally that, make it a mission, and then essentially drag it into the public eye and get mm -hmm. you know, the public and everyone watching it. But it was fascinating to see him maneuver against Apple and uh, did you see like their commercial and, and everything they were doing around that? Yeah, I, I followed it a little bit and I, I try to be a little bit above the fray, uh, so to speak. So, um, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, they uh, just did a video comparison kind of mocking that famous Apple ad about 1984. Uh, yeah, they yeah, did their own version. It was so good. <laughs> yeah, what a cool uh, decision to make there. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that takes guts to try to take on Apple, right? Mm-hmm. What about books? Is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you? And this can be a business book or it can just be a personal book that influenced how you view the world? Well, yeah, there's a few interesting choices there. But if I had to pick just one as it relates to growing and building a company, I would say the book uh, Crucial Conversations was really important for me. You know, the limiting factor, I think, in my growth was sort of understanding how conflict arises, even in like cohesive and and great teams. And that book helps you understand why a certain comment will come out from under someone's breath, or you might start noticing some, some kind of behaviors in your organization that are hidden from you. And they're really coming from a place of a, a lack of safety to come forward with the truth. Things like if you hear somebody provide feedback or critical feedback to you, and then start dismissing it, immediately or holding that over someone's head or something of that nature. It's really just realizing that feedback will come to you one way or the other. And if you want it to be shared, you know, thoughtfully and effectively, you need to make sure that it's safe for everyone in your organization to do that. So I found that book to be uh, incredibly illuminating and, and the lessons uh, I learned from that I use every day. I think you're the third person to come on now and reference that book. So that's enough for me. I'll, uh, I'll add it to the Amazon list now. <laughs> Amazing. Now let's talk about origin story. So take us to day one and the, the days leading up to that. What is the origin story behind the company? Yeah, I guess it's kind of split into two pieces. One is the why we're doing what we're doing. And, and another one is who with. So maybe it's easier to start with who, who with. So I met my co-founders, Ewan and Andy, in a really high-pressure situation, an environment we were all consulting in. And we saw how each other behaved in that sort of crucible and knew that that was the right team to build a company with, with the, you know, the right combination of empathy, strategy, and execution. And why do we exist? What's the problem that we're looking to solve? We sort of started with the core pain point that we were ourselves experiencing. So there's all these new spatial display devices, things like holographic screens, virtual reality headsets, augmented reality headsets, and so on. And with these new spatial devices, you can see sort of into and around content. What I mean by that is like, you can move your point of view. So if you had like an actor or a character standing in front of another character, if you moved your head to the side, you would see the part that was previously blocked by the first one. And you'd be able to see further into the background and and these sorts of things on these devices. But there's no way to capture live action for these devices. You know, existing technology was way too costly to do this with or far too inflexible. And we'd been following some recent work and some research groups that was called Free Viewpoint Video, Volumetric Video, and that looked really, really promising. Now, for some previous work I'd been doing due diligence for like a venture capitalist, it was clear that there were interesting folks that were working on the camera capture systems to record this kind of data, and that there were folks working on the display hardware, but nobody was addressing the sort of core pain point of compressing this really, really large data and transporting that data from the capture solution to the display devices. 
and nobody was addressing post-production. So when you want to edit, combine, or in any way modify this captured data, it was something like having a camera or a digital camera without the JPEG or without Photoshop. And that's really the problem that we set out to solve. So we were taking what was essentially a collection of early research findings, adding our own research findings, and trying to understand how this would impact production of content at scale. You know, knowing that initially the people using this stuff would be professional production groups. And what types of companies and what industries are experiencing these types of problems that you're aiming to solve? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Thinking about it as, you know, where do we fit into the market? We're basically looking to replace video virtually everywhere it exists today. So anywhere now that you see, you know, a flat recording from real life, we're aiming for that to be a holographic recording. And so it's hard to say which market exactly this applies to, because it's kind of every market. But we are seeing places where there's clear leverage of this new kind of data that adds tremendous benefit over what used to exist. So right now, that's in, in marketing activations. That's in online retail, like fashion retail primarily and in the production of film and entertainment. And just so we can understand the definitions here, can you define what volumetric video is? Like, does that encompass AR, VR, XR, like all these other terms? Or like, what is it really? And how do you explain it in simple terms? Yeah, it's a great question. So what would be nice is that if volumetric video was called 3D video, but it's sort of an unfortunate case of, of marketing history. So we've all seen like 3D movies where you, you know, put on the 3D glasses and because you've got the 3D glasses on, the picture sort of pops out at you. It looks like the picture has depth. And that's more accurately called like stereoscopic video. That is, there's two videos, you know, one for your left eye and one for your right eye. And by seeing each of those videos in each of your eyes, your respective eyes, it appears that the video is, you know, a 3D image with depth and it can move out of the screen towards you. But the actual video recording itself is just two standard videos, one for each eye. So it's got, it's from a fixed position. You're seeing from a fixed point. And so it still has sort of the director determining what it is in the scene that you're looking at. What volumetric video is, is instead of having an image for each frame of the content, you've got a full three-dimensional scene. And you can move your viewpoint anywhere in that scene you want. So that's really the distinction. It's more like being in a piece of interacting theater where you can move around the theater set and watch what's happening from any vantage point. So is it kind of like Google Maps then where you can click around and have different viewpoints? Yeah, it's kind of like Google Maps, except instead of there being like these particular points you can see from, it's every point in between. Mm, got it. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, and, and so when it comes to how this fits into the world of 
you know, XR, AR, VR, and so on. Those are one way that you can encounter this kind of content. You could also flatten this content, you know, have it be elements, a 3D VFX scene that's used to make, you know, a standard film, or it could be displayed on new types of displays that we call holographic displays, which allow you to share viewing of this stuff with other people and without the need for a headset. And I also see that you have holograms listed there. What's going on with holograms? I feel like that they got a lot of buzz. It was probably like 10 years ago. I don't know if you remember that, but they had like a a Tupac concert and he was a hologram. It was cool. Everyone was talking about it. But I'm not sure if I've seen any you know, really practical use cases yet with holograms or any technology there that really seems to be taking that to the next level. Am I wrong there? Because I'm obviously not tracking this space. Um, so if we look at just holograms, you know, what is going on in that market today? Yeah, it's really interesting. You get into the, like a lot of the semantics of language really quickly. So, so what does the word hologram mean? It means whole picture, really. That's what it means. And so you've got a hologram is, is basically a 3D video. So hologram is another name for any type of content, which is played back linearly, like a video, but has a full three-dimensional image. And so volumetric video is one kind of hologram. And there are other kinds of holograms out there and various technologies for capturing them. What we saw in the popular consciousness of things like Tupac's hologram and what have you was really just a projection trick that allowed you to play back a two-dimensional video in a way that appeared like it was floating on a stage in midair. And popularly, people decided to call those holograms, but they're not really holograms. The projection trick that's been around for, you know, a hundred years or more. So what we call holograms and what's changing in the industry and, and in popular consciousness is kind of any linear or video like content, which you can see from all sides. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And, and thanks for clarifying some of these terms. That seems like a, a very confusing space. Yeah, it can be a little hard to dive into. And, and that's, I think, why you're seeing, you know, various attempts at redefining, you know, the name for this stuff and, um, and making it clear to, to consumers what it is that they're getting. Yeah, makes sense. And it sounds like there's just a lot of different ways your tech is being used and there's many different use cases. Is there a specific one that you want to maybe call out and just talk the audience through? Yeah, I'll, I'll call out the case of a virtual production. So the way that film used to be made is you build a large film set and, you know, maybe some portion of that set is a green screen, you know, for the background and some portion of that set is actually built environment. And then the actors and the extras and so on all act in the foreground sort of built environment part of the set. And the cameras in real life move through that set and record the action. So the directing and the acting is determined at the same time. You know, you've got to capture the shot as the actor is taking the best take and you have to know ahead of time 
what the path the camera moves is. You know, more recently, for example, with television shows like The Mandalorian and films like uh, The Jungle Book, directors have been virtualizing the production. What I mean by that is that they basically build the sets in 3D software ahead of time. And the place where the action is recorded is this stage, which has these large LED walls and can show any three-dimensional image on that LED wall that you'd like. And so what happens is they get the actor to just stand on this LED stage and the camera is moving through that LED stage while they capture just, you know, one or a few actors in the foreground. And then the background is drawing this large 3D scene. And so what that helps them do is create these places and these environments, you know, for much cheaper than it would take to build out the whole thing with real materials. But the problem is that you can't put actors into that three-dimensional background without a technology like ours. You could, but it would be very expensive and or it would look a little too fake. It would look something like video game characters in the background. And so our technology helps solve this problem. And by doing that, it makes the film production much more cost effective. Mm, Fascinating. And in terms of the adoption that you're seeing with your technology, are there any numbers or metrics that you can share? Or what's that North Star number that you're really looking at to monitor growth? Anything you can share there? Yeah, there's really two big variable costs that we monitor here. One of them is the amount of volumetric video that's being processed through our processing cloud. And so we saw an increase of 150% in processing last year. And the other one is distributing this data to end viewers, where we saw a 575% increase over the year before. So a lot of uptake in, in streaming this kind of data to end viewers. Wow. And another thing I want to touch on, and you had mentioned this, I think, in our pre-interview, is the idea of category creation. So for you, is this a category creation play? Are you creating a totally new category? Yeah, that's a really hard question to answer. You know, you could say we're creating a brand new category because we're creating a brand new type of media, or at least making a brand new type of media feasible to be used in the real world. So it's functionally everywhere and, and applies to sort of all market categories in some sense. Is that a new category? Uh, is it just a transformation of an old one? I don't know. What do you think? Mm, I think it's tough to say, and I think it depends on how the buyers buy at the end of the day, right? I think in some industries, buyers really do buy based on category. I think especially when you're looking at the enterprise space where they just go to Gartner and say, hey, you know, who's the leader of this category? How do I buy? But I think it just depends on how buyers make their decisions. How do you see buyers making decisions in your market? Yeah, that's really interesting. So there's really two main types of customer that we have. We've got the big brands, you know, folks like the McDonald's or the Uniqlo's or other large brands of this sort. And they're basically delivering this data to their customers or the folks that they're advertising to. And then we've also got the content producers. These are the production companies that would be hired, 
either by the brand themselves or by a marketing agency or as part of a piece of live entertainment to produce this media in the first place. So from the brand's viewpoint, they're making choices with marketing budgets, with project budgets, and as part of their own product planning and product development. And, you know, that's where we're meeting them and that's how we're accessing them. And then through the production companies, you know, we're accessing them through things like industry events, things like the, you know, production technology media and and so on. Makes a lot of sense. You know, we tend to think about category creation. And I think this goes against how a lot of people talk about it and think about it. You know, a lot of them just try to come up with a catchy name. And then their goal is just to get people to to use that name, you know, talk about platforms like theirs. We see that not work that often. Yeah, buyers are typically allergic to just new terms invented by the marketing department. Where we see category creation efforts really work is when it's not just creating a category term, it's creating a movement in a totally new and different way of doing something. So it sounds like to me, that's your opportunity, right? It sounds like the movement is volumetric video and the power of volumetric video and getting people to embrace that. Because once they embrace that, then they would understand the need for a platform to execute within that discipline, if that makes sense. You got it. Fascinating. Very cool. Now, I'm sure you've encountered a number of challenges in your journey so far. If we had to pick just one of those challenges that you experienced and then overcame, what is it and how'd you overcome it? Yeah, there's an interesting kind of story in the and the sort of go-to-market strategy. So to capture this kind of data, you go to these capture stages where you've got all these cameras and they're pointed inwards on the volume. And then, you know, your actors or performers go into that volume, do their performance, and then you're able to reproduce that in, in three dimensions. We'd initially hoped to go to market through all of these capture stages where this data was being captured. You know, selling through the stages to the customer with partnerships with the stages. And we had a couple of these partnerships early on that worked really well for us. And we planned on our go-to-market strategy based around those early successes. You know, two things kind of came out of that. One of them is that not like these early capture stages had much more technical know-how and much more understanding of what our value prop was than the later stages to kind of be stood up as this technology gained more popularity. And they didn't necessarily have, you know, these new stages didn't quite understand what the incentives were to promote our solution to their customers and sort of saw it as a sort of add-on or a gold plating expense. So that made the the go-to market strategy initially turn out a little bit different than we expected. So we worked to overcome this in a couple of ways. One is to sort of, you know, sit on top of the capture stage. So folks would come to us instead as a complete solution and, and we'd bundle the capture as, as sort of a sub contract to the overall project. And the other is to make our value prop quite a bit more clear to those capture stages and properly incentivize uh, the equation for them. 
Now, one thing I also want to ask you, because it's really interesting, you're CTO and you're talking about go to market. And that's not something that I feel is very common in an organization. Normally, the CTO is obviously you know, focused on the, the other side of the business. So for you, what's that journey been like to really you know, learn and understand the go to market process? And how did you end up being so active in it? Yeah, it's interesting. I would say that with a company like ours, where the technology is so bleeding edge, there almost necessarily has to be more of a mind meld happening between the units of the company that are more business oriented and the ones which are more technology oriented. That is like the CEO and the chief of product and the marketing department need to understand the constraints and the possibilities and the particulars of the technology and how it's used in a lot of detail. And in doing so, they're kind of asking the questions about the things they need to know, like, you know, how do I sell this? Who do I sell it to? And so on and so forth. So we as a company enjoy a lot of overlap and cross-pollination between sort of technical know-how and business know-how. And I also think that like, at least in my own personal philosophy, you kind of want to have a mini product manager in everybody in the company, right? You want them to understand what is it that our customer needs? What is it that we're offering as a value prop? And and how can what I do in my day-to-day contribute most effectively to that? It's kind of like a holistic take on business. You know, as someone that that's learned uh, some from Carol Sanford, who who does a lot of this sort of, you know, look at holistic business practice. I've learned a lot through that path. And it's sort of, you know, let me step more into the other sorts of roles in the company as needed and and have a little mini marketing person on my shoulder with all of the decisions I make. And I think that makes me more effective even at my job in a technical aspect. Makes a lot of sense. And that really resonates. And I can just see the logical case for why you know technical team members need to have at least an understanding of marketing, the go-to-market process. Because I think if that gap is too big, then you know, obviously they end up in isolation. And then I'm guessing that's where you know you see product failure sometimes is when the gap was just too big between what people actually wanted and what the market was looking for with what the technical team was actually building. Oh, yeah. And I've been there before. I've made my share of missteps in the past and I learned the hard way that you can't just, you know, stick your head in the sand and make the thing that you think is cool, hoping that everybody else wants to use it. You, you really have to be generating, collating and monitoring insights, you know, from all these different places, you know, the market, your customers, you know, the things that your team is saying internally as, as the core experts and so on. Makes a lot of sense. Now, last question. I know we're up on time here. Let's zoom out into the future. What's the three-year vision for the company? Yeah, maybe it's better rather than say, what's the three-year vision for the company to kind of imagine what this media might look like in the future. And that, that kind of dictates what the company will be. You can imagine that, you know, right now people go and capture volumetric video or holograms on these large, expensive stages where you've got like somewhere between 20 and 150 sensors or cameras pointed inward. And, you know, you can imagine these setting up one of these stages is a 
is a big expense. But the future is going to look like people capturing these these holograms or this volumetric video on their cell phone or with wearable headsets like AR glasses or other types of computing or pervasive computing devices you have around your house like Google Home or Alexa. And whatever sensors are available in the room, you, your friends who are, you have these devices are going to be used to capture this kind of volumetric video or holographic data as naturally as you capture video on your cell phone today. So we need to be building towards a world where everyone can capture this kind of data and putting in place the different tools and infrastructure that can support that world. So that's really what the future looks like as far as like user-generated content. And then in terms of broadcast content, we want to be looking at things like broadcasting an entire sports stadium as a hologram. And, and maybe you watch that on, on your coffee table where you know everyone in your family or your family and friends can see sort of like a one-to-one mapping of the stadium onto a holographic display that's sitting on your coffee table and and move their own view around when they want to get a look at one point or another of action. And and it'll maybe your your television is also showing, you know, sort of the broadcaster's view of the action at the same time. So we're building the technologies to kind of permit that world to exist. And um, it's super exciting. I mean, it certainly sounds super exciting and I can see why you're uh, you're so excited about everything that's happening here. Devin, I want to keep you on and ask you another 20 or 30 questions, but I know we are up on time here. So let's wrap. Before we do that, if people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, so they can find me on Twitter at Horseman, H-O-R-S-M-A-N, or they can find the company at Arcturus.studio. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your story, teaching us what some of these terms mean, and really share this vision. This is all super exciting, and we wish you the best of luck in executing on this vision. Yeah, thanks, Brett. This was really fun. All right, keep in touch. 